it's exciting to get back into the, the study of Mark, verse by verse, expository, going verse by verse uh, through the study. Um, the last time we were there was at the end of October. Um, and this study has been a great study. And the main focus statement from the study comes from the main theme of Mark, from the main character of Mark, which is Jesus. And it's found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says of himself, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The goal of the series in its simplest form is for every one of us to fall deeper in love with Jesus, the servant savior person of Jesus, and from this closeness, our desire will be to follow him more intimately, to obey him more earnestly, and to share him more passionately. And that is why we study God's word. Um, now, Mark is a different because I like what Mark Hughes says in his uh, commentary on Mark. He says this, In our age of aggressive evil and apathetic faith, the gospel of Mark resounds with the dynamic power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In what is perhaps the most dramatic and action-packed of the synoptic gospels, Mark's writing continues to inspire increased commitment in the church at large. His portrayal of Christ as the servant Savior takes on fresh relevance. And you and I have seen in our culture, we've, we've experienced in our culture this, this aggressive evil. But we have also have to admit that in our churches, there can be apathetic faith. And so Mark combines both of these together to combat both of these things, aggressive evil and apathetic faith, in a very dynamic way in studying the life of Jesus. Now some of you uh, began uh, months ago, had a, a Mark notebook. There's some on the table back there if you want more. Um, or if you need more. The last time we were in Mark, we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, and in that, uh, Jesus began telling the disciples that he was about to be handed over to the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, and he must suffer many things at their hand. He told them that he was going to be killed, and three days later, rise again. And of course, this baffled the disciples. They were always trying to figure out what Jesus was saying, really who Jesus was. They were trying to reconcile in our mind, their minds that Jesus as the Messiah, that would grow up as the Messiah and then yet be killed three days, uh, killed and then rise three days later. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 8 in Mark, Peter rebukes Jesus and says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. And Jesus turns back and rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, it is going to happen. Jesus then clarifies what it means to follow Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, three things, deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. There's nothing in the world more important than Jesus and him being Lord of our lives. And this morning, the story continues of Jesus, and he goes on a hike with three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and there he again encourages them in who he is as the Messiah. So before we get into chapter 9, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the truth that we've already got to hear in song, in the lyrics. Thank you for the gift that you've given us in music, and for the talents of the praise team this morning, who encourage our hearts to be in your presence and to hear from you. And now, God, this morning, as we open your word, I pray that your spirit would teach us, challenge us, convict us, and yet encourage us to become more and more like your son, Jesus. 
Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord this morning and respond by his spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever been hiking? If you ask most people, the best part of hiking is not the hike. It's not the climb. The best part of hiking is when you get to the top, the pinnacle, the summit, and you get to see what the climb was all about. Now, some love the climb, but almost all of us love the peak. And it's certainly the case for us. Our family has been on many, many hikes. We've seen many incredible views, mountains in North Carolina, mountains in New York. That was a scary one, by the way. Uh, A pretty place in North Carolina. Some of you have been there. We've been to hikes in Hawaii. We've been to hikes in Israel. And at the top of any hike, there is this view. There's this experience. There's this time to pause and take it all in. The top of the mountain gives a different perspective than that in the valley. Let me say that again. The top of the mountain gives a different perspective than that in the valley. The view and the experience at the top of the mountain makes the pain and struggle in the the valley of the hike worth it. And that's what's going to happen with Jesus and his disciples. There's three things I want to look at in this story in chapter 9. Before the climb, on the mountain, and coming down from the climb. Jesus takes a few of his disciples on a hike to give them a closer, upfront encounter with who he really is. Now the story of transfiguration is important, important enough that it's in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the main point, I believe, of this story is that God gives us the mountaintop experience not only to simply amaze us, but to capture our hearts and sustain us through the valley. So the title of the message is God on the Mountain. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read the first verse and stop there. Before the mountain, or before the hike. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. As I mentioned, Mark and many scriptures in the Gospels uh, talks about uh, the kingdom of God and who Jesus is. And the disciples were continually trying to figure out what Jesus was talking about and who he was in regards to the Messiah, and who he was in regards to the kingdom of God. Now, verse 1 of chapter 9 is really a continuation from Mark chapter 8 in the 38. Uh, There's really no chapters and verses. It's just one continuous thought. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says this, For whoever, Jesus says, is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now the second part of that thought is Mark chapter 9 verse 1 where Jesus says that there's some standing here that won't die until they see the kingdom coming with power. 
And so scholars have tried to figure out, what is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about when he says, the kingdom coming with power? Well, there's lots of different faults. Some think that it was the Mount of Transfiguration that was getting ready to happen. Some thought that maybe it was the ascension or the resurrection, or some thought it might be Pentecost, or even that, that the, the, the church was going to explode. But I believe, and I think most scholars agree, that it's talking about the transfiguration that's getting ready to happen, that some of you standing here are going to see the power and kingdom of God in just a little bit. Now, many Jews anticipated, of course, that there was going to be this kingdom of God, this, this ruler that was going to come up and set his throne to take over the Roman uh, 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 oppression. But that was not what Jesus' plans were. Jesus predicted a different path, that the kingdom he was bringing and which he was going to rule over was going to be one of suffering, of sorrow, by way of the cross, by way of forgiveness, that was the power. Throughout the gospel, you'll see Jesus taking time and finding a secluded place to go pray. You'll see him climb a mountain to be by himself to pray. This is one of those times. And he grabs Peter, James, and John, and he says, let's go to the mountain. And so he retreated to the mountain. Now, the passage in Mark, or Matthew or Luke, doesn't necessarily name the mountain. There are some scholars that think that it was Mount Tabor, which is like this dome-shaped, upside-down, uh, teacup-looking mountain. But there's also, many scholars believe that it was Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is approximately four times the size of Mount Tabor. And the proximity of Mount Hermon is closer to where Caesarea and Philippi was, where Jesus had been talking with his disciples. So Mount Hermon is, who, Hermon is where I believe the transfiguration takes place. So here they are, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, before they get ready to climb this tall mountain in order to pray with Jesus, if that's what Jesus in, uh, is in the, the gospel, uh, the disciples' mind, Peter, James, and John, we're going to go pray with Jesus, and they have no idea what they're getting ready to experience. Which brings us to our next part of the story, the hike to the top. Verse 2 of chapter 9 says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they had become terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As I mentioned before, when hiking a new mountain... The thrill or the motivation is what is going to be at the top. And these disciples were about to embark on something they had never embarked on at the top of this mountain. Now, before we get into what happened, I want to talk just a second about the three people, the three disciples that went up with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. You see them over and over with Jesus. Uh, some have said that, that, that they were part of Jesus' inner circle, that they were his closest friends, that his, his, his closest buds. Some have even said that they were his favorites because he just loved them so much. But there's another school of thought. 
The other school of thought is that Peter, James, and John needed Jesus more than the others. That they just couldn't get it. That these are the ones going, hang on, tell me again. He said, Peter, James, John, y'all come here. Let me tell you one more time. And so we can relate to Peter, James, and John, whether it's on either school of thought, that we are his favorites and we need Jesus to tell us over and over and over again. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know when Jesus knew what was going to take place at the top of the mountain. Maybe God, his father, had revealed it to him. Maybe he was telling him on the way up, or maybe he told him when he got up there. But the incidents of when and how, all of this is covered in this wonderful mystery. And verse 2 and 3 tells us, after climbing to the high part of the mountain... Jesus was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer can whiten them. Now, this word for transfigured is the translation where we get the word metamorphosis. It's the simple verb that refers to this act of giving outward expression of one's inner character. That outward expression from coming from what's already inside. Now, prior to this story, what was Jesus' outward expression? He was called the man of sorrows. People looked at him as an interim rabbi. Kind of took on the form, as Philippians says, as a human. And now, all together is different for Peter, James, and John. In a dramatic way, this this inward character of who Jesus is, is made visible. That Christ's outward facial appearance was being changed, but not because this external light was shining on him, but because it was coming out of him. So much so, in fact, it came out of his body, his face, his clothes even, so bright. And I love how Mark says, there's no bleach in town that can do this. (laughs) Matthew even adds, his face did shine. So so picture the scene. Put yourself in the story with Peter, James, and John. Thinking that they're going on a hike with Jesus to pray. And they're blown away at the top of this mountain. And not only that, verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. If the transfiguration didn't blow their mind, Moses and Elijah hanging out and talking with Jesus had to. Now, can you imagine watching Jesus talk with Elijah and Moses? The the three guys must have been rubbing their eyes, pinching themselves, slapping themselves on the face, maybe slapping each other. Can you believe what we are seeing and watching Jesus transformed, talking with Moses and Elijah? Now, what's interesting is Peter and James and John seem to immediately recognize Moses and Elijah. It wasn't like there was a formal introduction that we hear of, like, hi, I'm Elijah, hi, I'm Moses. They just immediately recognized who he was. I can't imagine how startled, as Peter said, how frightened these three young Jewish followers of Jesus would have been. Moses had died 1,500 years before this event. Elijah, 900 who really didn't die, but was taken up in a whirlwind. And so you had to be asking, 
Moses, where was it that you were buried? Nobody knows. Elijah, you've got to tell me, what was it like to be whirled up in a chariot? There had to be this, this longing to talk. But notice this, these two Old Testament prominent figures were talking to Jesus, and it didn't look like it wasn't normal. It's what heaven is like. Think of that. That right now, all the saints are conversing with one another. And in order for us to participate in that, we have to be a believer to be there. Where one day, you and I, with all the saints that have gone before us, will be talking. And we'll recognize Peter, James, and John thought they were going on a walk, a hike, to pray. And the view they see is way more than they could ever imagine. And here's Peter. you got to love him. Peter's staying true to who he is. I love his reaction. Verse 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, this is so good. Like, this is some good stuff. Why don't we just stay here? Let's build a tabernacle for you and Elijah, and Moses, and we'll just stay right here on top of the mountain. He was overwhelmed. He was frightened. His mind was racing, and his mouth went ahead of his mind. It was probably a good time to be quiet. But he loved the mountaintop experience and wanted to stay there, just like all of us. Let's build some tents. Let's stay here. Now, can you imagine Moses and Elijah hearing Peter say, let's build some tents? Like, Peter, do you know where we came from? Do you think I really want to stay in a tent here on earth? You can almost see Elijah's expression and Moses' expression. But the thing that happens next is what helps ground Peter and the others there. Verse 7 says this. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Greek translations and the tone of this verse shows that this cloud appeared and it clearly formed all around them. So notice what's happening on the mountain. Peter, James, and John on the top of the mountain. Jesus transfigures into this bright, bright light. Moses and Elijah are there talking. And then this cloud envelops all of them, and they hear this voice from God. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. All throughout the Jewish history, the presence of a cloud meant the presence of God. If you remember, it was in the cloud that Moses met God and, the, and led the Israelites. The cloud filled the tabernacle. The cloud filled the temple when Solomon built it. All throughout the Old Testament, the cloud is seen as God's presence with his people. And not only did they see the cloud, they heard an audible voice. Now, this wasn't new, because you remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus is being baptized, they hear a, a voice from heaven say, again, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Both times, God speaks to his Son, to Jesus, about Jesus. It is the most affirming and direct testimony to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, declared by the Father himself. And what did God's voice specifically say? 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, the backside of this statement is this. Anyone who does not listen to my son is rejecting me. Listen. This phrase, listen to him. Listen to him. You, you, you can't skip over that. The verb is a present imperative, meaning that it is a command that is ongoing. That you are to be constantly hearing and listening. But it's not just the act of hearing. It doesn't mean to merely refer to the act of hearing. It is the sense of listening to and the act of obeying what is heard. And that's the verb for us today, to listen and respond. Now, on this mountain, Jesus, if you think about it, gets a double approval, not only of who he is, but what his purpose was. First, we see it in Moses and Elijah. How encouraging would it have been for Jesus to have Moses and Elijah there with him on the mountain? Now, remember, Moses was the ultimate lawgiver. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. And both of these guys pointed to Jesus. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. But we all know that the law was not the fulfillment. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. The law pointed to the need of Jesus. And if you remember, Elijah was the guy who was on Mount Carmel. And you remember the battle in 1 Kings chapter 18 between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And I love what Elijah asked all the people in 1 Kings 18, 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Both Moses and Elijah, Moses in the, uh, in the desert, in the Egypt, leading the people out. Elijah calling the people out both on two different mountains, were now on Mount Hermon in the fulfillment of what they had been preaching and prophesying about for hundreds of years. It's an incredible scene. And so you had to be thinking, these are some great conversations. The second approval comes from God himself because Abba spoke with his son. Jesus continually put all his plans all his decisions, all of his obedience into the Father's hands. And his Father returned his obedience with this. You make me happy. I am so pleased with you. I am so proud of you. Keep going. Keep going. And then after that, Mark's words and the tone and the language, it's like it all stopped. And Jesus and Peter and James and John are left on the mountain. No more cloud, no more transfigured Jesus, no more voice from God. And so Jesus, Peter, James, and John head back down the mountain. Verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? 
And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it as written, the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as was written of him. Now, obviously, obviously, Peter, James, and John are coming down the mountain with questions. And they're swirling about what has happened. They're baffled. And you can almost hear them, what, what just happened? That was crazy. And what is Jesus talking about with this rising from the dead again? And then in verse 9, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody what happened. You can almost say, are you kidding me? Like, how are we not? I've got nine guys waiting at the bottom of this mountain. And they're going to be like, where have y'all been? Where did y'all go? And why do your faces look like that? But these men strictly observe the order of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, verse 36 they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything that they had seen. It's hard to keep a secret. But it would have been even harder to keep that. But they did it. But they were given permission. When? After I rise from the dead. When the cross had been taken place and when they had taught them what the Messiah meant. When they've been convinced by the resurrection, then they can tell the story of the glory on the mountain. Notice the words in verse 9. Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about what you have seen. Uh, This is like a a declaration that this really happened. This wasn't like some figment of somebody's imagination. It wasn't some story that somebody made up. It was what they seen. And years later, Peter would say in 1st, 2nd Peter 1, 16 and 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. It was real. It happened. They were asking him, tell me more about this Elijah thing, that he must come first. So watch this. Jesus tells them this in a way that the Jewish community would understand. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14 Jesus identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. He says, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was come. Not that he was Elijah, but the spirit of Elijah had come in John the Baptist. He says in Matthew's gospel, but I say to you that Elijah already came, but they failed to recognize him, and they treated him as they pleased. Similarly, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what was spoken to them about John the Baptist, and they connected it to Elijah, which they connected it to Jesus. And what did they do to Elijah? What, I mean, what did they do to John the Baptist? They beheaded John the Baptist. And Jesus is letting the disciples know the same thing. They're, they're going to kill me. And as the disciples came down the valley, came down the mountain, into the valley, little did they know what was about to take place. Now, there's some important takeaways from this 
event on the mountain. The first one is this. The transfiguration of Jesus is a powerful affirmation of Christ's identity, his divine identity. Remember at Caesarea Philippi where they were asking, who do people say that I am? And Peter jumps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, after this event, it was cemented in Peter's mind. Another thing we learn from the mountain is this, is that with, de- with Jesus, death loses its power. It's been almost 1,500 years since Moses died, 900 years since Elijah, and both Old Testament figures appeared to Christ with Christ on the mountain. It's a picture of this heavenly kingdom, that in the future of the new heaven and the new earth, There will be no need for this barrier between the dead and the living. All of us who are believers will be alive with Christ, with all the saints that have gone before us. So we can be confident that death will not be our end existence as believers in Jesus. The other thing this mountain experience teaches us is this, is like Jesus, we will be transformed forever. This transfiguration shows us that our bodies will not be impacted by pain or suffering or thirst or hunger or disease or anything evil. The mountaintop scene gives us a glimpse into the perfect kingdom that Christ's death and resurrection gives believers. There's a song, an old song with the line in it, what a day that will be. When my Jesus, I shall see. Phil Wickham wrote in the hymn of heaven these words, And on that day we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. And with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There will be a transformation that will last forever. So why are these principles so important for us today? Because life is filled with peaks and valleys. We have no control over the timing of either. When, how, or how long they last. And during those mountaintop moments, we like Peter say, oh, this is so good. Let's just stay right here. But the reality is, we don't jump from mountain peak to mountain peak. We have to go through valleys. Valleys where there's difficult moments. When we're confronted with difficult situations and circumstances that that catch us off guard, that surprise us. Things that we are not welcoming of. And during those moments, it's more difficult to sing praises to God. Or declare that he is good. It's in the valleys that sometimes our faith gets shaken. There's some doubt. There's confusion. There's hurt. There's pain. Peaks and valleys. Where are you? Are you on a peak or in a valley? Maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you're coming down from a peak and your mind is like the disciples. What, 
What just happened? And maybe you're in a valley thinking the same thing. It, it seems like with Jesus and the disciples, they went from peak to peak. They, they sell Jesus, feed the 5,000, and heal this person, this miraculous event, and he walked on water. But they have no idea that they're getting ready to go into the valley of the shadow of death with Jesus. And this incredible transfiguration, this event, helps them hold on to who Jesus is in the midst of the valley. It's the same thing that sustains, that sustains us, the truth of who Jesus is. Bill and Glory Gaither, as well as many, many others, have made popular a song written by Tracy Dart called God on the Mountain. Listen to the first two verses in the chorus. Life is easy when you're up on the mountain. You've got peace of mind like you've never known. But things change when you're down in the valley. Don't lose faith, for you're never alone. Second verse says, you talk of faith when you're up on the mountain, but talk comes so easy when life is at its best. Now it's down in the valleys of trials and temptations. That's where your faith is really put to the test. And listen to the chorus. For the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. And the God of the good times is still God in the bad times. The God of the day is still God in the night. God gives us mountaintop experiences not to simply amaze us, but to capture our hearts and sustain us through the valley. There's no better plan than God's, even if it means suffering and pain all the way to death. As God said, stay the course, listen to him. The glory of God awaits us at the end of our journey. So some questions this week. When was your last mountaintop experience with the Lord? Where were you? What did you learn of God? What did you learn of yourself? What are you holding on to? What principles, values, and truths did God show you about himself on the mountain? And are you taking time to rehearse and remember those times now? And the last thing is this. The mountaintop experience is not just for us. In a room this size with this many people, it's safe to say that not everybody's on the mountain. There are people this morning in the valley. And we need to remind people in the valley that God is the God in the valley as much as he is on the mountain. And rehearse the truths of God. And to do what God told us. This is my beloved son. Hang on to him and do what he says. Let me pray for us. God, what a powerful story. And not a story as a make-believe story, but an actual event that we learn from today. God, I pray this morning that the mountaintop experience for some here would be to accept you as their Savior. To turn from their way of living and do what you tell us, to listen to you, to accept you as our Savior. God, I pray 
that each person here will be counted among those who have a heavenly conversation all the time for eternity. That death will lose its sting. That we'll be transformed forever. God, what a day that will be. God, help us, we pray, to hold on to the truths we learn on the mountain so that we can stay faithful to you in the valley. And we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.